Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Barnes Carr writes in his new book, The Lenin Plot, The Untold Story of America's Midnight War Against Russia, that shortly after the October Revolution, the administration of President Woodrow Wilson, together with Britain and France, launched a secret operation to topple the fledgling Soviet state and then assassinate Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and other top officials. Their goal was to install their own allied-friendly dictator in Moscow as a means of getting Russia back into the war effort against Germany. The book is published by Pegasus Books and brings Barnes Carr to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, appreciate your asking me. Now, Presidents FDR, Ronald Reagan, and Barack Obama all claim that we never fought against the Soviet Union in war, but as your book makes clear, that isn't true. We fought them both covertly and overtly. Right. That's all in the, uh, you can look up uh, FDR's statement, uh, Reagan's statement. Uh, Obama was kind of, um, kind of vague about it. He was trying to reset relations with Russia. But I think some historians thought he was trying to ignore our past history with Russia. It looks like uh, Donald Trump also tried to reset our relations with Russia. And that's a whole other kind of story. Um, right. Months after Lenin seized power in October 1917, he withdrew Russia from the First World War. Was that part of a secret deal that the Bolsheviks had struck with Germany uh, when Germany transported Lenin and a small group of exiled radicals from Switzerland to Petrograd? Um, with yes, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, Lenin made a deal with uh, Berlin. Uh, they would they would launder millions of German marks through Stockholm and um, deposit it in banks in Russia, which were either friendly to the Bolsheviks or controlled by the Bolsheviks. The main one was the Siberian bank in, uh, I believe it was Petrograd. The deal was Germans, the Germans would supply uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks with money to create mischief during the revolution and if a revolution occurred, which did occur in February, 1917. They wanted Lenin to uh, wrest control of the provisional government to stage a coup, a military coup, take control of the government, take Russia out of the war and allow Germany to move divisions over to the Western Front, which was the main battleground of the war. And uh, immediately after the Bolshevik coup, Lenin announced he was gonna start talks with the Germans to sign a separate peace with Germany. Uh, many of his Bolshevik advisors were opposed to this. Trotsky in particular was uh, heatedly opposed to this. But nevertheless, uh, Lenin convinced the, uh, his uh, advisors to go along with the plan. He signed the uh, Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which was in effect a surrender to Germany. Germany seized large chunks of the old Russian uh, empire in this deal. The documents uh, pertaining to the payments that Germany made to the Bolsheviks are in the National Archives in Washington, in the records of the German foreign ministry during mm -hmm. the World War I period. Now there was extreme war weariness in Russia and some estimates give 2 million as the number of Russian military and civilian deaths in the First World War. Was Lenin's promise to end the war one of the main reasons his Revolution succeeded. Yes, there've been there've been uh, all the countries by 1917 and into 1918 were tired of the war. 
Millions have been killed. Uh, a lot of money had been spent. Uh, food and medical supplies were short. Uh, Russia was in famine. Uh, Germany was in near famine. Uh, there were mutinies in the French army. And uh, there was a, uh, Lenin wanted out of the war and, and a lot of the czar's advisors wanted him to get out of the war. But Lenin was the one who uh, picked up the ball and ran with it. So when Lenin made that separate peace with Germany, did the allies feel that they had a right to retaliate? Oh yes, oh yes. They feared military defeat on the Western Front. Indeed, uh, several weeks after Lenin uh, signed his separate peace with Germany, the Germans mounted a series of major offensives on the Western Front and almost defeated the allies. Uh, the French uh, were, were able to, the French, uh, England didn't have a lot of troops at that particular point, but uh, the French uh, fought the Germans mainly in, in that area and they had to call up reserves and, uh, and they got as many American troops as they could to, to join in. But uh, the allies almost lost the war because of that separate peace. Also, when the Bolsheviks took power, didn't they seize foreign assets and, and promise to spread revolution throughout the world, uh, which led Winston Churchill to suggest strangling Bolshevism in the cradle before it had a chance to spread revolution around the world? Oh, yes. They, the Western powers feared uh, revolution uh, in their own countries. Uh, things weren't going so well in, in some of the Western European countries. There was a high poverty rate. Uh, high unemployment rate, uh, health problems, all sorts of things. People were dissatisfied, you know, and, and they wanted change. And um, Germany was also one of the countries that uh, feared a spread of uh, revolution from Russia. You say that the plot against the new Bolshevik regime was initiated by U.S. Secretary of State Robert Lansing, but wasn't he a pacifist? Oh, yes. He was a pacifist and so was uh, President Wilson. But, uh, and and Wilson was an advocate of self-determination. Exactly. So exactly. Both of them are going against what they claim to be. Exactly. Uh, I hate to use the word lies, but uh, there was a lot of um, misconceptions and uh, misdirections and uh, uh, excuses and, you know, who shot John and all that. Uh, the plot originated in uh, December 1917, um, Lansing finally realized that the, the, the Allies faced defeat if Lenin was able to allow Germany to leave the war. So he uh, came up with this plan to hire a Cossack army in South Russia to invade Moscow and Petrograd and stage a coup, turn out the Bolsheviks, and there was an understanding there was an, uh, an understanding, I think, that probably the Cossacks would execute Lenin. And uh, Lansing uh, proposed this plan to uh, President Wilson. He said, we cannot lend money uh, legally to the Cossacks because they're not an independent nation. This is Lansing, Lansing speaking. Mm -hmm. Lansing said, let's send the money to pay the Cossacks to England and France and let them launder the money and pay the Cossacks. And Wilson said, this has my complete approval. Well, they were also hoping to install somebody, a new leader. The Romanovs were no longer a possibility. Did they have anybody in mind? 
Uh, there are a lot of names that were um, bandied about, but uh, they didn't really have a, a, a clear plan until about replacing Lenin until the latter stages of the uh, of the uh, plot um, in August of 19, uh, 17, uh, 1918. Uh, one of the names <coughs> proposed was Boris Savinkov. Mm. Boris Savinkov was leader of an underground army in Russia. <clears throat> he was an SR, a socialist revolutionary. The SRs were the largest revolutionary party in Russia. He was also called Bloody Boris, wasn't he? Bloody Boris, yeah, yeah. The most so, infamous international terrorist of the time. Right, exactly. He had been killing czarist officials for years. And then he turns his, turns his attention toward the Bolsheviks. Um, uh, Savinkov, the problem with Savinkov is he was a drug addict. He had all sorts of delusions of grandeur. He felt that if he, if he wore silk underwear that would make him impervious to gunfire. And he, he couldn't be trusted. Uh, if they got him in there, he might decide, well, to hell with the allies. I'm gonna run Russia myself, get out of my country. Really? So there, there are a lot of names that were being passed around, but at, at no time did they ever really have a definite uh, candidate for this allied dictatorship. There are so many interesting characters in this story. Oh, the yes. U.S. Consul General <laughs> in Moscow is DeWitt Clinton Poole, who Poodles. was a former who was a former tennis champion. Uh, you you say yeah he was uh, uh, called Poodles, <laughs> but he uh, he left uh, Moscow uh, on a covert mission to hire a Cossack army. Uh, right, he was sitting down there. Was it? That, that, those Sorry. were the white Russians? Uh, well, they were Cossacks. Uh, hmm. I don't like to use the word white Russians because uh, the whites suggest that they were monarchs, monarch, monarchists, mm -hmm. that they supported the czar, a return of the, to, to the throne. But uh, none of the Cossacks wanted that. Uh, some of them wanted a, a constitutional democracy uh, like England's or a pure democracy like France's or a federalist system like the United States. Uh, the, the, the term white whites, as far as I can determine, uh, did not appear until the 1920s in the media. You claim that Poole and his main field officer, a man with an incredible name, yeah. Xenophon de Blumenthal Kalamatiano, were right. two of the most important figures in the history of American intelligence. Yeah, now, I mean, they were, they were the ones who really tried to get this uh, plot uh, to succeed. So these both ex-jocks, uh, Poole was a former tennis champion. Calamantiano was uh, a Russian-born track star at the University right. of Chicago, but also right. a tractor salesman. Yeah, he went to work for Case, Case Implements, Case Incorporated, uh, out of Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, selling uh, farm implements, mostly tractors. He also sold some automobiles in Russia. It was a good job. He was making a lot of money. He left uh, Case and for formed his own company for a couple of years, but went back to Case. Cal's problem was uh, with the uh, German and uh, allied embargoes of Russia, he could not get new imports of farm machinery. So he went to work for the uh, U.S. consulate in uh, Moscow at that time as uh, an agent, a field agent for a pool. 
And he recruited the Red Army's head of communications as an informant. So he was oh, effective. Yeah. That, That's because he that could a, speak Russian. Did that help? Yeah. Uh, Kalamateano spoke Russian without an English accent and English without a Russian accent. He was perfect for the part mm. of a field agent in Russia. But the, uh, but the uh, uh, officer he recruited inside the Red Army Communications Office was named Freed, Alexander Freed. He was Latvian and also a secret anti-communist. And he volunteered to help uh, uh, Kalamantiano and also Sidney Riley, a British agent. Uh, Freed would uh, make copies of secret Red Army documents while he was at work. And then when he went home at night, he gave these copies to his sister, Maria, and she took them to Kalamantiano and he passed them along to the U.S. consulate, the French and the British, and also to U.S. Ambassador uh, uh, David Francis, who at that time was in Bologda. So Freed was, uh, was their main man inside. He was their main mole inside uh, the Red Army. David Francis was the U.S. US ambassador. Um, didn't he once uh, stand up to a Bolshevik lynch mob armed with only a shotgun? Right. <laughs> he only got two shots. <laughs> the uh, Bolshevik mob stormed the uh, U.S. consulate. They were going to lynch him and anybody else that they could get their hands on. And he and his faithful uh, servant, David Jordan, uh, opened the, the doors to the porch. And Francis went out with a shotgun and said, uh, this, was, this is sacred United States diplomatic territory. And they, at that point, they got the, they got the point and, and left. My guess is Barnes Carr, who is a veteran journalist, uh, but now he's written a book called The Lenin Plot, The Untold Story of America's Midnight War Against Russia, published by Pegasus Books. Uh, the uh, Kalamanciano uh, was arrested and sentenced to death. Was he the first American spy to be swapped for a Soviet agent? So far as I know, yes. Um, a British agent, um, Bruce Lockhart, was arrested around the same time. Uh, he was Who arrested tried. them? Uh, the Cheka, the, C the mm. Soviet secret police. Uh, Yakov Peters was the arresting officer. Um, Lockhart was, uh, was held and swapped for Maxim Litvinov, uh, Lenin's unofficial representative in London, who was mm -hmm. currently being held in jail in London, and he got out on a swap. But Kalamantiano was sentenced to death, but the, the sentence was not carried through. And in his report to the State Department later, uh, Cal said that uh, there was a war going on between the diplomatic service and the Red Army. The Red Army wanted blood. They wanted to, wanted to execute Cal. But the bit diplomatic service said, service said, no, let's hold on to him and uh, you know, use him for a swap later on. So his, his death sentence was uh, commuted to, I think, five years in prison and then two years in prison. And finally, he got out in 1921. Now, this story has a, a cast of colorful characters, special agents, double agents, triple agents, executive agents, agents of influence, <laughs> agent yes. provocateur, at least one femme fatale. Was that Fanny Kaplan? No, that was um, that was that was um, 
uh, Poo, uh, Lockhart's girlfriend mm. in Russia. Uh, she wouldn't. Okay, you don't. We don't need her name. It's okay. Beckendorf. But let's talk. Beckendorf. What's her name? Beckendorf. Mm -hmm. She was a triple agent. She was helping out Lockhart. She was also spying for uh, Russia and Germany. And the the Surete <laughs> in London uh, got onto her case pretty fast. Well, Fanny Kaplan uh, is it, had an interesting story. She resisted the Tsar and then the Bolsheviks and plotted an almost successful assassination of Lenin. Yeah, she was a, she was a longtime uh, revolutionary. She was first arrested in 1905 for an attempted assassination in Ukraine, and she was uh, sent to prison. She was given life, a life sentence, which didn't really mean a life sentence. What it meant was they could keep her as long as they wanted to. But she never uh, repented for her, for her SR uh, activities. And when she got out of prison, the, the provisional government, when they took over the government after the Russian Revolution, uh, they freed all political prisoners and welcomed all exiles back into the country. So Fanny was freed uh, from jail and she immediately began uh, plotting to shoot Lenin. Uh, she went into a, an SR terrorist group in Moscow, and uh, she was part of a team that was um, assigned to get rid of uh, Lenin. And she uh, and her accomplices uh, found Lenin making a speech one night at a factory in South Moscow. And uh, I think there were three, at least three in her team. It was, there was Fanny, another woman, and a man. And as Lenin was walking back to his car, uh, this man, there, there, he, he was followed by a crowd of people who wanted to congratulate him on his speech or, you know, or, or lodge numerous complaints against the Bolsheviks. So Lenin was trying to answer their questions when a man uh, stepped forward in the crowd and held his arm out to allow a break, a small break in the crowd. And then a woman stepped out with a pistol in her hand and shot Lenin three times, uh, once in the neck and twice in the, in the chest. And uh, she uh, fled, as did her uh, co-conspirators. She was arrested outside in the street and taken in for questioning. And she confessed to the whole thing. And she uh, had no link to uh, the U.S. or the Allies. I think she did. When, uh, when Boris Sabinkoff later wrote his memoirs, he told his translator, uh, I think it was David Chaplin, that he gave Fanny the pistol she used to shoot Lenin. And of course, Sabinkoff was an allied agent. So there's some, there's some connection there. I think that's as close as we'll get to a smoking gun until new information services, surfaces. You mentioned uh, Sidney Riley. Um, also, <laughs> another, also another, another known as, <laughs> also known as Ace of Spies, yeah. and uh, mm. it's been suggested that he may have served as the model for Ian Fleming's James Bond. That's what uh, Ian Fleming told a colleague at the Sunday Times in 1953. But Fleming later uh, changed his story a little bit uh, to, to to mention other names. The truth is, in any fictional character. That character is based on a number of people. Hmm. 
Well, unlike Bond, this character actually had a lot more colorful aspects. Oh, he oh, yeah. saw himself as an as Napoleon reincarnated, and other times claimed that he was Jesus Christ. Yes, he was another drug addict. The, the Allies had two major drug addicts on their team, Sidney Riley and Boris Sabinkoff. Uh, Riley did see himself, he had delusions too, saw himself as Napoleon. He said, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and they, and they're was, just, go ahead. Well, Riley had a colorful background. He's best described as a, as a Russian adventurer. He, um, With a name like Riley? Well, Riley was not his real name. He had a, a whole list of supposedly real names, 10 or 12 of them. Nobody knows what his real name was. Nobody knows exactly where he was born. Nobody knows exactly where he went to college. He uh, appeared in London. He, he fled Russia after the 1905 revolution and appeared in Russia. He had a lot of money. And uh, Scotland Yard suspects that he had murdered some people and stolen their money. But he went to college in uh, London learning chemistry, which is a useful trade for counterfeiting and forgery. And when the... Uh, Bolsheviks took over, he volunteered his services to uh, the British uh, Foreign Intelligence, the, the British Secret Service, which at that time was MI1C, later MI6. And the, the director didn't want to hire him, but he didn't have a, a great talent pool. Uh, the, he was having to recruit from the ranks of Cambridge and Oxford and the upper class in Russia. And those guys simply did not know how to go into a foreign country and merge with the natives the proletariat, go into a beer hall, that sort of thing. So Riley was, was a Russian. He had worked in Russia, stolen a lot of money in Russia, and he was an ideal candidate. So they put him on the payroll and sent him over there. Hmm. He was not a British uh, citizen. He was a, they gave him a British passport, but he was called a British subject. He got the name Riley from the uh, uh, father of one of his wives, uh, his name was Riley. Uh, Riley, the real Riley, was suspected of having been, having been murdered by Riley, by Sidney, in order to get his money. So that's where the Riley came from. Wow, so many incredible characters in the story. Uh, oh, yeah. French provided a few. Henri de Vethelmont, uh, a, a saboteur who wore a black trench coat and cap and slept with explosives under his bed. <laughs> Henri de Vietemont. Yeah, he was, uh, he was apparently Calamontiano's main um, street comrade in their, in their spy work. He was, uh, he was an interesting guy. He, was, uh, he arrived in Russia. He, he didn't really try to disguise himself. He, wrote a, he dressed all in black, in a black hat mm. and a black mustache and a black suit and a black cigar. Mm. And he got a job teaching in a school in Moscow as a cover for his intelligence work. But he got, he got uh, exposed pretty soon and uh, he had to go on the run. He fled Russia, but he was uh, an expert in explosives. He blew up railroads, um, Red Army, airfields, bridges, things like that. He was one of the main plotters. And then there's a, a, a man with an incredible name, Charles Adolphe Faux Pas Bidet. Oh, I love that. <laughs> he, 
He he was a former Paris policeman who had worked uh, the the French case against Matahari. Right, right. And he had, interestingly, he had arrested Trotsky at one time in Paris. And uh, the uh, Okrana, the Tsar's secret service, the predecessor to the Cheka and the KGB and all that, they were after Trotsky. And uh, Bidet helpfully uh, deported Trotsky out of France so the Okrana couldn't get him. And I've always wondered what was going on there. Was uh, was what kind of relationship did those men have? I suspect that uh, Bidet was trying to groom Trotsky as a potential future double agent for the Surete or the police in, in uh, Paris. It must have been weird having a name like Bidet in France. I know, I know. <laughs> Faux pas as well. That has to be fake. Uh, nobody could think that up. <laughs> so you mentioned the Cheka. The, the Bolshevik security police, they infiltrated the, the ranks of the plotters and arrested many of, uh, of its members, although you say Riley managed to escape. Um, no, so the, the Cheka was already an effective organization? Yes, they were pretty good. They were, um, a lot of them were, had been former employees of the Okrana. They had years of experience. They were seasoned, experienced intelligence and security officers. And they caught on to the Lenin plot in the early summer of 1918. And uh, they didn't do anything right away. They started gathering evidence, interviewing people, sending in moles to, in, to infiltrate the plot. And uh, Lenin also was aware that a plot was being hatched against him. And I don't know how he could, how he could miss it with all mm. the, the fumbling and bumbling that was going on inside the Lenin plot. So in, in 1921, in return for U.S. aid, the Bolshevik government handed over 100 Americans who had been involved in these plots. Right. Uh, Kalamantiano got out just a couple of days before that, that treaty was signed. Uh, Russia was in famine and uh, was, was suffering from pandemics. I mean, millions were dying and Lenin didn't want to do anything about it. And so his advisors and the archbishop and various other people put pressure on him to negotiate with the U.S. for emergency foreign aid. And Herbert Hoover, later the president, was head of the American Recovery Administration, which was helping Europe uh, uh, recover from the war. Uh, he began the negotiations with one of Lenin's uh, representatives and they came up with this plan where the United States would supply Russia with food and uh, medicines and uh, blankets and so forth in exchange for the release of 100 prisoners. Uh, it was kind of a one-sided deal. I mean, uh, Russia only gave up 100 prisoners and got these millions of dollars in assistance. In today's uh, money, that would be billions and billions. <clears throat> now, uh you mentioned a pandemic. Are we talking about the Spanish flu or is that a second pandemic that uh, is connected with this story? Well, the, the, the Spanish flu was still raging pretty badly in, 19, uh, in the 1920s. It's not as bad as it had been in 1917 and 1918. Was it brought also, in by, the, uh, by the, the allies when they invaded, which we'll talk about later? I'm not sure. I've done some research on that with the, with the CDC and, and the WHO and other sources. 
the current theory is that the Spanish flu did not, uh, did not originate in Spain. It originated yeah. in Asia, maybe yeah. South China or Vietnam. No, it it's named taken. the Spanish flu because nobody wanted to report on it, but the Spa Spain uh, was not uh, was willing to discuss the fact that its king had come down with the flu, and so they reported it, and uh, it, that the name Spanish then was stuck to it. I think that's right. Also, uh, well, as you say, uh, Spain was not under censorship, so they could yeah. report on it. And they had an enormous number of deaths week by week by week. And I think that also contributed to it being called the Spanish flu. There's so many interesting characters here. I mean, we wind up uh, with Arthur Ransom and Somerset Mom serving in the British Secret Intelligence Service. Uh, you're listening well, lady, to... I, go ahead. I read uh, a good bit about Ransom, but I did not include him because I was uh, interested primarily in the, the American point of view. See, Although the French were running this thing and the Brits played a major role. America was kind of number three in this whole thing, wasn't it? No, I think number uh, the uh, Yakov Peters told Lockhart that the United States was the, quote, most compromised in the mm -hmm. Lenin plot. It started out as, a, as an American plot, then the French were brought in, and then the British. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, so before I get back to my conversation with Barnes Carr, I'd like to ask you to support the programming that we bring you on Leonard Lopez at Large by calling 516-620-3602 right now or by going to give to WBAI.org on the web. Becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a great way to keep it all coming to you without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy during today's show in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. We would be happy to send you a copy of my guest Barnes Carr's book, The Lenin Plot, The Unknown Story of America's War Against Russia, as our way of saying thanks. All you need to do is call 516-620-3602 or visit give2wbai.org online. Sign up to become a BAI buddy at the tax-deductible monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever is easiest for you. And that's it. We'll take care of the rest. You don't even have to mention the book to the person at the BAI call center. My staff will make sure that you get it if you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show. BAI buddies are a particularly great way to contribute because they provide the station with a steady stream of support, allowing us to plan for the future. But however you choose to donate, the important thing is that you do your part to keep the show and this legendary radio station alive. The only radio station in New York City that's completely listener-sponsored without corporate underwriting or, or funding grants of any kind. If you agree that independent media is more important now than ever, we need your help to keep it going. So one last time, the number to call, 
516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org online and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and a big thank you from all of us and now we return to my guest Barnes Carr uh, whose latest book is The Lenin Plot, The Untold Story of America's Midnight War Against Russia, published by Pegasus Books. Uh, you say that your interest in, in The Lenin Plot began when you were a student in New Orleans and had a chance encounter with an elderly alumnus in the university library? Right. I was a senior at Tulane, and I was living in a, an inner-city brick pile. It didn't have air conditioning. So when it got really hot in the summertime, I would go over to the library and take a nap which, where, where it was air conditioned. So I met this gentleman one day and uh, he was sitting out on the steps in front of the library. And uh, uh, he was uh, something of a raconteur. He was entertaining um, several people with stories. So I sat down next to him and we started talking. And he had gone, he had graduated from Tulane after the war and gone to Paris as a young man and he had met a lot of people, the Hemingways and the Scott Fitzgeralds and so forth. And he mentioned one day that he had met us, a couple of guys who had fought in America's war against Russia. And I said, well, I'd never heard of that. He said, well, you're studying creative writing, aren't you? I said, mm -hmm. yes. He said, well, build, be creative, do some research. So at that time, there was no internet. And uh, if you wanted to look up something, you had to use card catalogs. Now, Tulane has one of the largest Russian collections. Their library has one of the largest library, uh, Russian collections in the country. Their entire third floor is Russian. So I started poking around and not finding very much. So I pulled down some bound copies of the London Times and L'Illustration, uh, a French news magazine, and the Literary Digest, which despite its name was a major news weekly in the US at that time. And started reading about it and said, well, I thought, you know, this sounds interesting. We invaded Russia. Why did we do that? And I started doing more and more research and I came across Kalamantiano. A couple of scholars had written articles about him, but uh, a lot of the information was, was vague and contradictory. So I started investigating his life. So I thought, well, I think I'll write a biography of Kalamantiano. Then I discovered DeWitt Poole was his yeah. control officer. And I said, well, I'll do a biography of Poole too, you know, in the same volume. And the more I did research, the more I found out how deep this plot was against Lenin. And eventually, mainly starting two years ago, I came across copies of the original Cheka documents investigating the Lenin plot and the uh, shooting of uh, Lenin. That's how, the, that's how the research progressed. Well, you mentioned the invasion, so let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, all of these other things are happening, uh, um, these attempts to assassinate Lenin, to uh, undermine the new regime, uh, an allied expeditionary force, American, British, French, and some Russians, uh, landed an archangel in the Russian Arctic and engaged with Bolshevik forces. It was led by British Brigadier General Edmund Ironside, now, yes, uh, the, and, and you said earlier that the American role in that was illegal. Well, let me, let me start at the very beginning. Um, there were three Allied invasions of European Russia, two at Murmansk 
and one at, and one at, no, one at Murmansk and two at Archangel. The first uh, one at Murmansk was intended to protect Allied supplies in that area from uh, captured by the Germans who were next door in Finland. And a few weeks later, they went over to Archangel and they landed in Archangel. And uh, that was their same excuse. They were there to uh, protect Allied supplies. And that's what President Wilson said when he approved the, the, the invasions. But if you agreed between the lines, I think there's an, there's an accepted mm, uh, feeling that uh, they really, Wilson really was open, not publicly, this is all secret. He was open to the idea of, of uh, uh, defeating the Red Army and staging this coup in, in Moscow. And uh, the first, he made, a, he made a major mistake. When he, he became, he grew to, re, to regret pretty fast. Uh, Versailles was, was authorized these invasions and uh, they suggested that uh, Wilson put U.S. troops under British command. Well, the War Department in Washington didn't like that at all, nor did the State Department, nor did uh, Wilson's advisors. But for some reason, he's not clear on this. For some reason, he, he approved the idea. I think he just wanted to, you know, relieve this pressure on him every day from the French and the British to do something. So he said, well, okay, I'll put them under British command. Go ahead and do what you want to do. And the first commander was Poole, F.C. Poole. He was, um, he was an arrogant, upper-class, somewhat incompetent, uh, abusive, detached commander. And things just went to hell almost immediately. Uh, they landed, uh, the Allies landed in, in Archangel in September and the, after under control, under command of, of Poole, uh, mutinies broke out against the uh, against the war and the British. This is different from DeWitt, DeWitt Pool, a different pool. Right, yeah, yeah. F.C. Pool, Frederick C. Pool, I think, F.C. Pool. Mm -hmm. So um, Wilson heard about all this trouble over there and he got on, got on the line to the to the British and said, you've got to do something in North Russia. This is, uh, this is getting way out of control. So they sacked uh, Pool and sent in Edmund Ironside, a decorated veteran from the Western Front. He was six feet four, and they said he was as wide as the Clyde River. <laughs> and he was just the opposite of Poole. He, he got into his uh, carriages and sleds and went out to the fronts and uh, delivered food and medical supplies and winter uniforms and ammunition and began uh, rotating them to get rests. Um, the troops loved him. He really, he really, true. He really saved the Allied expedition from disaster. But it was still ineffective. Yeah, uh, it, 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 too small. What, what are some of the reasons? Uh, we're talking about over twenty thousand troops, including forty five hundred Americans, um, uh, and uh, and soldiers from other nations as well. As I said, France, uh, Britain, Italy, Italy. Okay, and some Russians as well. Uh, some, so, some, Pol some Poles, and uh, there were some Japanese and Chinese around from time to time. Um, I'm not, I don't really understand Wilson's thinking on all this. Well, I don't know what he expected to accomplish with such a small force. I think he wanted to get in there and see what could be done. And if they could, raise, he, he said he wanted to raise a new Russian army. 
I think that was his plan to, to send this troop in this uh, expedition over there to train a new Russian army and get the country back in the war. But the uh, British had uh, the British commander Poole had other ideas. He 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 sent American troops promptly into combat against the Red Army against Wilson's orders. The uh, some Allied uh, soldiers questioned what they were even doing in Russia, which had been a former ally, especially after later when Germany and its allies surrendered. Oh, yes. Uh, United States troops, uh, French troops, Russian troops, uh, even some of the British troops staged mutinies in uh, Russia. After the, after the armistice was signed in November uh, 1918, what was the point? That was their, they said, what are we fighting for? And they just went, it just went from bad to worse very quickly. Also, weren't they, wasn't the winter clothing that they were issued inadequate? Yes, exactly. At first it was. Uh, Ironside delivered uh, real winter clothing to them. But Poole didn't want, didn't want to deliver uh, new boots or new winter clothes, or he didn't, he didn't want the men to, to smoke American cigarettes or <laughs> drink uh, American uh, coffee. He was just, uh, you know, very detached from his troops. I think he was uh, satisfied with being retired in England and uh, didn't want to be called up and sent over here. And he thought it was a ridiculous sideshow. But the, the number of troops was a problem from the very beginning. Uh, as soon as the, the landings were accomplished, Ambassador Francis, who was one of the key members of the Lenin plot, uh, asked Washington for 200,000 troops to take Petrograd and Moscow. And uh, they ignored him. Now, at first, France was America's main partner in operations against Lenin. But Ambassador Joseph Nulon went on a crusade to collect 13 billion francs that the Soviet government had stolen from French investors. Uh, and that was before the British joined in on the plot. So the uh, French yes, wanted the, the money back. Exactly, exactly. Uh, New Laws is one of the key plotters in the Lenin plot, along with uh, de Vertemont, uh and Bidet, and Calamantiano, and Lansing, and Poole, and Lockhart, and Riley. The French were, were really determined to get their damn money back. The French even had some other interesting people. One of them was a, a prison interrogator who later moved to France and invented Chanel Number no. 5. Right. The, the British and the French opened up a concentration camp on an island offshore from Archangel. The U.S. Uh, doesn't appear to have any uh, connection to that. And uh, they interrogated uh, Red Army prisoners. Uh, I, it's been read that they tortured some and executed a number of them. Others died from disease. It was a real mess. And uh, one of the interrogators, French interrogators, was this, uh, was this man who lay, was the czar's uh, perfume manufacturer. <laughs> and after the war, he went to Paris and invented uh, Chanel Number no. 5, which he thought would capture the essence of uh, uh, the winter in Russia. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sure, it sure worked out well for the <laughs> Chanel company. Yeah. <laughs> When the soldiers returned, didn't the United States and the UK governments try to sweep the whole thing under the rug? 
Yes, the the press covered the invasion quite uh, uh, thoroughly, especially in the in the, the London Times and the in the Sunday Times, um, and the Detroit newspapers covered it quite thoroughly because most of the U.S. troops were called Detroit's own, uh, also called the uh, the polar bears. They came from uh, Camp Custer in Michigan, and so the Detroit newspapers. Uh, began looking at this thing and seeing all the abuses that were going on over there. And, and they started editorializing against the war. So the, the White House and the State Department, and the War Department couldn't do anything about the press coverage. But once the war was over and the media turned their attention to other matters, the White House and the State Department, and the War Department really tried to cover it up. They denied anything. Uh, Wilson said he denied any intervention, quote, intervention in the internal affairs of, or, quote, sovereignty of Russia. And the War Department would not even allow U.S. veterans from Russia to get copies of their service records. So that went on for years until finally some of the U.S. officers who had served in Russia began writing books about it. And with that, the cat was out of the bag. People found out what was going on, what had gone on over there. My guest on London's Located at Large today on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Barnes Carr, whose latest book is The Lenin Plot, The Untold Story of America's Midnight War Against Russia, published by Pegasus Books. Well, we try to sweep it under the rug, but uh, it was definitely something that uh, the, uh, the Soviet Union kept in mind. Um, were things patched up at all uh, when we became allies during World War II? To a certain degree, but we were not true allies. It's more like strange bedfellows. Uh, Russia was fighting on the side of the Western allies, but they, uh, they continued to spy against the West and steal military secrets. So it really wasn't a, a, a true alliance with Russia. Uh, okay. After after the World War after World War One and after the Lenin plot and after the Russian Civil War, uh, the Russia, the Kremlin looked upon the Lenin plot, including the invasions of Russia, as proof that the West was out to destroy the Soviet state, and they used that as a, a casus belli for uh, spy operations against the West. And that went on, you know, it's, it's been going on ever since. The uh, uh, if, the, if the Cold War can be defined as an attempt to defeat another country militarily, politically, culturally, whatever, without a former declaration of war, then it began with the Lenin plot, and it continues today. I mean, I've interviewed former KGB officers and uh, historians in Russia, and they say it's still going on. It's just changed. It's that we no longer have military confrontations through surrogate armies, but the spying, we're still stealing secrets on the ground and we're, we have all of this uh, digital spying now. It's still so, going on. So you're suggesting that the Cold War, even though most people say it started after World War II, really started as a result of this? Yes. Um, the term Cold War was coined in 1947 in, the, uh, in a speech before the uh, South Carolina Congress, and the media thought it had a good ring to it, and they picked it mm -hmm. up. And uh, 
historians, some historians picked it up too without really checking out what was going on. See, a lot of this information about the, the origins of the, of the uh, Cold War, the Lenin plot, the invasions of Russia, all that stuff, that doesn't really, didn't really come out to any detail until the 1980s and 90s, I guess. Is this so something that, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, finish what you were saying. Oh, I was just gonna say that uh, there were some books written about US intervention, intervention in Russia. And there were some articles written about the, the war, the, the winter war in Russia, but very, very little went into detail on the Lenin plot. The, the information just it either wasn't there or the researchers didn't uh, probe deep enough to find it. And that's what I did. I spent years researching this thing. Would uh, you find anything in the current Russian literature about all of this? Because uh, I'd imagine after the fall of communism, uh, the, uh, the, the view of some of these things might have uh, been changed a little bit. I think so. I've, I've talked to uh, historians in Russia, and uh, they say it's remembered, uh, but not as keenly as it was before. In the 1980s and 90s, there was a lot of Russian scholarly research into the, the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik coup, the Russian Civil War, and all that. Uh, I read some very interesting uh, discussions by panels of Russian uh, political scientists and historians they studied it fairly deeply. Now, in, 19, in the 1990s, uh, the Russian Federation uh, opened, reopened the investigation into the shooting of the Lenin and the Lenin plot, and the state investigator uh, wrote extensive reports, which I've included in the book. But after that, it's kind of cooled off. I haven't heard very much lately. How did the, the fighting end? Uh, and, and how were the troops... Uh, brought back? Well, after the, the Americans suffered a catastrophic defeat at the Battle of, Sh at the Battle of Shinkursk. Uh, they were confronted by an overwhelming Red Army. But Trotsky did not want to eradicate. But Renan didn't, uh, Trotsky did not want to uh, totally defeat, wipe out the American army because the United States had millions of troops in France who could, be, who could very easily be sent over to Russia to invade Russia. So he just had the idea, let's just drive them to the sea, which he did. He drove them to Archangel. And after that, Wilson said, bring them home. So the Americans were the first to leave. Uh, Americans and French were the first to leave. The British were the last to leave. And they, they had a hard time getting out. Um, Russians, uh, uh, the Russian troops that they re had recruited uh, staged mutinies against the British. The British uh, staged executions. At one point, they went into a, a company and decimated the ranks. That is, they, they, they shot every 10th man. Uh, British officers were beat, beat to death in the streets of Vasco, I mean, of Archangel. They had a nasty time getting out. And as they left the, the uh, the, the lumber yards on both sides of the river were torched by arsonists. It was a mess getting out. There were, you mentioned the Japanese and the Chinese. Obviously, uh, Russia 
extends pretty much into Asia. Um, were were troops uh, from those countries involved as well? India. Uh, there were a few uh, Japanese and Chinese troops at Archangel, but they were mainly in the Far East, as you say, in the Siberia. Uh, they were part of the Allied landings out there. I didn't go too much into that because the the uh, Allied landings in the Far East had nothing to do with the Lenin plot. Well, we've pretty much come to the end of this conversation. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but it's been fascinating. And Barnes, thank you so much for being on our show today. Well, Linda, I, I appreciate your asking me. I'd like to say uh, also thanks to my publisher, Claiborne Hancock at uh, Pegasus Books and my British publisher, Amberley. They're, they're great fans of your show. <laughs> well, Barnes Carr's book is called The Lenin Plot, The Untold Story of America's Midnight War Against Russia, published by Pegasus Books. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And uh, you'll find links to all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you like to, if you would like to send me a comment about a show or just to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I want to remind you that if you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this 100% listener-sponsored radio station alive. Please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to uh, 516-620-3602 or online to give to WBAI.org. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show, by making a monthly contribution of, of $10, $15, $20, whatever, in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we would be happy to send you a copy of The Lenin Plot, The Unknown Story of America's War Against Russia by my guest Barnes Carr. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And from all of us, thank you so much. We are off Monday for the Pacifica Network special Martin Luther King Day programming, but I hope you'll join us for Tuesday's show when journalist, author, and regular contributor to this show, Michael Patrick McDonald, will bring us up to date on the fallout from Brexit. We'll see you then.